together as a church family, and we're going to be continuing through Genesis. And in a moment, I'm going to read through Genesis 32. So if you have a Bible and you want to kind of get ready, you can get ready right now. Uh, but, but let me just say a couple things for introduction. If you haven't been around a lot as we've been going through the Genesis study, we haven't been going through every single chapter and every single verse and every chapter. What we've been doing is we've been taking different parts of Genesis to highlight and then summing up what happens in between. And we're doing that just to sort of get the big picture. What is the big point of what God is telling us throughout this book? And we're in the middle of the story of Jacob right now. And if you were here last week, what we talked about is there's a story where Jacob is kind of a trickster schemes to get to get the family blessing that had been passed down from Abraham to his son Isaac. He schemes to get the family blessing and then he ends up on the run for his life because his twin brother Esau wants to kill him. And there's an amazing story that we went through last week where Jacob's all by himself and he's lonely and he's afraid and God appears to him in a vision of a stairway that's connecting heaven and earth. That's where we left Jacob last week. He got this sense of hope. All right, I'm fleeing away from my family. I'm going to my extended family. But I now know that God is with me. And where we're going to pick up in chapter 32 is 20 years later. Now, later on, after I read the passage, I'll, I'll try to do some other summing up. But let me just say a couple things that might help you understand what we're about to read. So this is 20 years later. Jacob's life is different now. Now Jacob has two wives. More on that later. He has 11 sons, he has a lot of servants, he has a lot of animals, he's had a lot go on, and now he is trying to get back home. In chapter 28, he was fleeing from his home, now he's trying to get back home, and there's only one obstacle still in the way. And the one obstacle still in the way is, what about Esau? Now, I'm going to read through all of chapter 32, which, which is kind of a lot. It's a bunch of verses. But I'm going, I want to read through all of this for us so that we can hear God's word read and get the big picture of this and experience the story together before walking through it. So you can follow along in your Bibles, or if you don't have a Bible, you can follow along on the screen as the verses will be scrolling through as I read. Genesis 32, starting in verse 1. Jacob also went his way... And the angels of God met him. When Jacob saw them, he said, this is the camp of God. So he named the place Mahanaim. Jacob sent messengers ahead of him to his brother Esau in the land of Seir, the country of Edom. He instructed them, this is what you are to say to my Lord Esau. Your servant Jacob says, I've been staying with Laban and have remained there till now. I have cattle and donkeys, sheep and goats, male and female servants. Now I am sending this message to my Lord that I may find favor in your eyes. When the messengers returned to Jacob, they said, we went to your brother Esau and now he is coming to meet you and 400 men are with him. In great fear and distress, Jacob divided the people who were with him into two groups, and the flocks and herds and camels as well. He thought if Esau comes and attacks one group, the group that is left may escape. Then Jacob prayed, O God of my father Abraham, God of my father Isaac, Lord, you who said to me, go back to your country and your relatives and I will make you prosper. I am unworthy of all the kindness and faithfulness you have shown your servant. I had only my staff when I crossed this Jordan, and now I have become two camps. 
Save me, I pray, from the hand of my brother Esau, for I am afraid that he will come and attack me and also the mothers with their children. But you have said, I will surely make you prosper and will make your descendants like the sand of the sea, which cannot be counted. He spent the night there, and from what he had with him, he selected a gift for his brother Esau, 200 female goats and 20 male goats, 200 ewes and 20 rams, 30 female camels with their young. 40 cows and 10 bulls, 20 female donkeys and 10 male donkeys. He put them in the care of his servants, each herd by itself, and said to his servants, go ahead of me and keep some space between the herds. He instructed the one in the lead, when my brother Esau meets you and asks, who do you belong to and where are you going and who owns all these animals in front of you, then you are to say, they belong to your servant Jacob. They are gifts sent to my Lord Esau and he is coming behind us. He also instructed the second and third and all others who followed the herds, you are to say the same thing to Esau when you meet him, and be sure to say your servant Jacob is coming behind us. For he thought, I will pacify him with these gifts I am sending on ahead. Later, when I see him, perhaps he will receive me. So Jacob's gifts went on ahead of him, but he himself spent the night in the camp. That night, Jacob got up and took his two wives, his two female servants, and his 11 sons and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. After he had sent them across the stream, he sent over all his possessions. So Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him till daybreak. When the man saw that he could not overpower him, he touched the socket of Jacob's hip so that the hip was wrenched as he wrestled with the man. Then the man said, let me go for it is daybreak. But Jacob replied, I will not let you go unless you bless me. The man asked him, what is your name? Jacob, he answered. Then the man said, your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel, because you have struggled with God and with humans and have overcome. Jacob said, please tell me your name. But he replied, why do you ask my name? Then he blessed him there. So Jacob called the place Peniel, saying, It is because I saw God face to face, and yet my life was spared. The sun rose above him as he passed Peniel, and he was limping because of his hip. Therefore, to this day, the Israelites do not eat the tendon attached to the socket of the hip, because the socket of Jacob's hip was touched near the tendon. This is God's word. Let's pray together before we move forward. Father, thank you that you speak to us. We pray right now as we spend this time walking through this story and seeking to hear from you, we pray that you speak through the power of your word, through the power of your spirit. We pray that you meet us where we are struggling and battling, and we pray that we experience the hope that only you can give. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so it's obviously an interesting story. It's a weird story. We'll walk through it, and I'll try to walk us through it, and and actually what we'll walk through in detail is verses 22 through 32, Um, but but first I I just want to introduce this and introduce our time by asking a question that will frame this whole time together, and the question is this, why does God lead us into desperate situations? It's pretty clear in the story with Jacob, he's in a desperate situation. And there's some of you in the, here this morning that it's not hard for you to think. You don't have to think for very long before you would identify in your life right now something that makes you feel desperate. 
It could be financial and some uncertainty going on around that. It could be a health uncertainty that you have or a relationship uncertainty. It could be a decision that you need to make and you wish that God would just spell it out, but you're not sure. And so you're feeling uneasy. It could be that you're battling a sin and you really want freedom from it. And you look at God and say, you could just make this not tempting, but God has still led you into desperation. Why does God lead us into desperate situations? And in some ways, the the reason we ask this question is because it seems like if God really wants all people to come to faith in him, he wouldn't do this. Seems like if God really wanted all people to come to believe in him, he would make the lives of Christians really, really easy and happy. I mean, that's what advertisers do, right? You don't ever go on the page of a law firm and have some testimonial where somebody says, I had big legal problems and I hired this law firm and now, well, I'm in prison. Um, There's that. (laughs) That's not the testimonial that you hear. Everybody gets off. Everybody's happy with what they got. Why wouldn't God want our lives to be so prosperous and easy that people from the outside would look at our lives and say, I want in on that? Why instead does he lead us into desperate situations? Why instead, when we come to faith in Christ, and we see this all throughout the Bible, why do our lives seem to get more difficult, more strenuous, more desperate? That's certainly what we see with Jacob. And as we walk through his story, we're going to see an answer to this question. But but let me just build to it again. I I talked a little bit. All right, there's a 20-year gap between what we went through last week and what we read through today. And the main thing that happened in that 20-year gap is that after the vision of the stairway to heaven, Jacob ends up going to his extended family and he meets his mom's brother, Laban. And that's the main thing that happens in those 20 years because once Jacob meets Laban, he ends up in a 20-year battle with this man. Jacob's name means deception, and Jacob's whole life was based around the idea that he could manipulate and scheme to get the upper hand on anyone, although to this point, it was just getting the upper hand on Esau, which not exactly the brightest bulb in the bunch. But at this point, Jacob meets somebody who out-Jacobs him. He meets Laban, and they're out-scheming each other, and the biggest scheme has to do with the fact that Jacob instantly falls in love with Laban's daughter, Rachel. Laban has two daughters. The older one is named Leah, and she's not quite as beautiful. And then he has a younger daughter named Rachel, and she's really, really beautiful. Jacob instantly falls in love with her and says, you know what? I will work for you for free for seven years if I get to marry Rachel. And Laban signs on to this. And then seven years later, they have a wedding with apparently a really thick veil over the bride because Jacob wakes up the next morning and finds himself married to Leah. And there's a comical scene. This is funny because he goes to Laban and he's so indignant. He's so upset. This man who had tricked his blind father into blessing him has the audacity to go to Laban and say, you, you, you tricked me. Jacob and Laban engage in a 20-year battle of who is the bigger schemer. Jacob ends up having to work for Laban for seven more years before he gets Rachel. So he ends up with two wives, which, by the way, some of you might be looking at this and saying, why? Why why does this happen? Why isn't there a verse in the Old Testament that just says, don't do this, don't do polygamy? And there's not, and that kind of makes us uncomfortable. But what you do have in the Bible is that every time polygamy shows up, it is chaotic. And in this story, it's chaotic. 
It's as if the biblical authors are just yelling at us. God's not directly telling you right now, don't do this. But if you're reading the stories, you know, don't do this. This is bad. This leads to jealousy and rivalry and hurt and pain and all kinds of terrible things. So for 20 years, that's Jacob's life. And then God appears to him and says, all right, it's time to go home. And Jacob takes him up on this. But when he goes home, he doesn't tell Laban. He just sneaks away because he thinks Laban's going to have one last trick. And Laban finds out and chases him down in chapter 31. But when Laban gets there and is about ready to exact some revenge, Laban says, God appeared to me in a dream last night and told me not to harm you. So even in all of that scheming, Jacob is delivered by God. And now we're at the point of the story of chapter 32. We end up, Jacob's got away from Laban. He has his family now. The only thing in his way is what's going to be the deal with Esau? 20 years ago, Esau was determined to kill Jacob. What's going to be the deal with Esau now? And I'll sum up the first part of chapter 32 because at the beginning of chapter 32, Jacob is met with angels. The angels of God meet him. And this is a good sign because the last time we saw the angels of God was with the stairway. We saw the angels going up and going down on that. All right, God's here. This is a good sign. Maybe this is going to work out. And so Jacob goes ahead and sends a message to Esau and he's very deferring and he's very kind. I'm your servant. You're my Lord. I just want to check, make sure things are cool, make sure things are all right. And the messengers come back and they say, oh, Esau really wants to see you. He's coming with 400 men. And Jacob knows that he's in trouble. And so he divides up his, his people. He says, all right, you, you group go over there. You go over there. That way, if Esau attacks, he might get some of us, but he won't get all of us. Um, and he's still kind of scheming. And so he schemes about a gift. And he says, all right, we're going to send this gift so that by the time Esau gets to us, he already will have had this gift. And maybe he'll be flattered and maybe he'll be appeased and he won't come and attack us after all that. He has a little bit of schemes, but he also has a prayer. And the prayer shows that Jacob really has come to the end of himself. It's the longest prayer in the book of Genesis. And Jacob cries out to God and he banks on God's promises. He does give him thanks. He says, now I get it. I left with nothing and I'm coming back with all this. I understand it. It's all because of your kindness. But God, you've made promises. You told me you were going to take care of me. Now, God, it's up to you. I'm out of schemes. I'm out of ideas. I'm not as strong. Esau's a warrior. I'm not. I can't get myself out of this. God, you have to do something. And all of that leads us to the state of mind that Jacob is in as we start walking through verses 22 through 32. And and I'll just say as we walk through, you'll see it on the screen, kind of three stages to this story. We've got a fight, we've got some names, and then we have some fallout. So it begins with a fight. Verse 22 says, That night Jacob got up and took his two wives, his two female servants, and his 11 sons and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. After he had sent them across the stream, he sent over all his possessions. And then just look at the first part of verse 24. Jacob was left alone. The last time Jacob was alone was back in chapter 28, and God appeared to him in a vision. Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him till daybreak. Now, is anybody else looking at this and saying, could I have a little bit more explanation of this? This is a really strange idea. A man wrestled with him. We don't get to find out how did this come about. Did he sneak up on him? Did Jacob see somebody and go and get him? What exactly happened here? And we're not told what exactly happened, except that we're left with the impression Jacob didn't start this fight. 
A man wrestled with him. And so maybe Jacob thought it was Esau coming to attack him. We're not really told what he thought. But he ends up engaged in a wrestling match till daybreak. Now, a couple notes on this. The first is this. We find out later on that Jacob's conclusion is that he has just wrestled with God. Now, this is confusing for a couple reasons, and one of the reasons it's confusing is because in the book of Hosea, this incident is referred to, and it says that Jacob wrestled an angel. We can say, well, which one is it? Did he wrestle an angel, or did he wrestle with God? And I think the answer is in this. When you read through the Old Testament, there's a person who frequently appears, and he is referred to as the angel of the Lord. Not just an angel, but the angel of the Lord. In fact, the word angel just means messenger. It's the messenger of Yahweh. God sends his messenger, and when he appears, the way he talks is as if he is God himself. The angel of the Lord is frequently thought by theologians to be the pre-incarnate son of God. That means this, we read in the New Testament and we know, all right, God is three persons. He's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And only one of those three persons took on flesh. And it's the Son. As strange as it sounds, it's almost certain that Jacob is wrestling with Jesus in this passage. So that's the first part. The other part is, do you notice, they wrestle till daybreak. Now, I don't know if any of you have done some wrestling in your life, and I'm not talking about WWE wrestling, you know, actual wrestling. Those matches are short. Uh, they do like three one-minute rounds because wrestling is utterly exhausting. You're using your entire body, and afterwards you're, you're sweaty and you're sore and you're tired and exhausted from all of this. This is a long wrestling match. And Jacob has started this wrestling match already feeling overwhelmed and probably uh, despairing and afraid of what's going to happen for the future. Now he gets into this night-long fight. You would think if there was ever a time for a guy just to say like, all right, I'm beat, I'm done, going to roll over. It's just, it's all done for me. I don't have anything left in me. It would have been now, but Jacob doesn't do that. Look at verse 25. When the man saw that he could not overpower him. All right, let's hold on again. Who's Jacob wrestling with? Yeah, he's, he's wrestling with God. When the man couldn't overpower him, how could God not overpower Jacob? And I think what we're meant to understand here is, and you understand this if you're a parent, sometimes you play a game with your kid and you kind of let them hang around in the game, but you play hard enough that they have to work for it. So sometimes, especially as a dad, you wrestle with your kid and maybe you do eventually let your kid win, but you don't just let him win instantly. You want him to go through the struggle. You want him to go through the battle of actually having to work for the win. That appears to be what's going on here with God. God is condescending to the level of a human being, just like he does when he comes to Cain in Genesis chapter four. And he says, Cain, where's your brother Abel? And Cain says, I don't know where he is. And God knew where he was the whole time. He wasn't asking Cain where Abel was because God needed help with directions. He was asking Cain where Abel was because he was engaging with Cain as a human being. That's what he's doing here with Jacob. All right, so back to the passage. When the man saw that he could not overpower him, he touched the socket of Jacob's hip so that the hip was wrenched as he wrestled with the man. Jacob's life just keeps getting worse. 
He doesn't know what he's going to do about Esau. Then he ends up in this night-long night fight. And just when he thinks he's winning, I love it. It doesn't even say there was some great move that God did here. He reaches over and touches Jacob's hip and the hip is wrenched out of socket. And by the way, this had to be the point where Jacob was like, this is no ordinary guy I'm wrestling with here. Touch my hip, my hip is out of socket. You cannot wrestle without having your hip. That's all of your stamina. That's all of your base. That's gone now. If now there is a point for Jacob to give up, it's clearly here. I'm tired, I'm exhausted, I'm sweaty, I'm frustrated, I have Esau coming tomorrow, I don't know what's going to happen with this, now my hip is throbbing and I have no traction, I'm done. But he's not done, the fight is not over, and what we get next is something that has to do with names. Verse 26, it says, then the man said, let me go, for it is daybreak, which cracks me up, because I'm like, what are you, a vampire? Like, I gotta get out of here before the sun comes, and that's not it. What's going on is that the son is going to reveal identity. And to this point, the identity of the man wrestling with Jacob has been hidden. They're saying, all right, the son is coming. You're about to find out something you're not supposed to find out. Let me go. But Jacob replied, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And here we get into Jacob's psyche. Jacob's looking at the situation and blessing has been a big part of his life. He tricked his blind dad into passing the blessing along to him because he knew that with the blessing had to do with the idea of God's presence. If I have the blessing, God will be with me. If I have the blessing, God will be for me. And then after he had to flee away, God actually gave him the blessing through the great vision that he had in chapter 28. And now here's Jacob again, and he's about to face down his biggest and scariest obstacle yet. And he says, I don't know exactly who you are. I don't know exactly what's going on, but you're not going anywhere until I get a blessing. I'm not letting go until you bless me. I'm not letting go until I'm certain that God is with me and will get me through this. The man asked him, what's your name? And he replied, Jacob, which again, Jacob, the name had to do with scheming. It had to do with deceit. And in verse 28, it says, the man said, your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel, because you've struggled with God and with humans and have overcome. And the new name Israel, which ended up giving the name to the entire nation, the name Israel means struggled with God. You used to be the man who deceived and schemed to get ahead in life. Now you're the man who has struggled with God and overcome. Now you're the man who is engaged in the ultimate wrestling match. You've struggled with God and you're about to walk away with a blessing. I love verse 29. Jacob says, please tell me your name. It's like, let me give this one more shot. I want to know who you are. Please tell me your name. But he replied, why do you ask my name? which I don't know for sure. It's almost as if he's saying to him, you don't know yet? Why do you ask my name? And then he blessed him there. And then we get this interesting fallout starting in verse 30. It says, so Jacob called the place Peniel, saying it's because I saw God face to face and yet my life was spared. Back in chapter 28, Jacob sees this vision of the stairway to heaven. And he says, God was here. This is now Bethel, house of God. And then he has this wrestling match with God in chapter 32. And he says, this is now Peniel, face of God, because I saw God face to face and my life was spared. And verse 31 says, the sun rose above him as he passed Peniel and he was limping because of his hip. 
Therefore, to this day, the Israelites do not eat the tendon attached to the socket of the hip because the socket of Jacob's hip was touched near the tendon. It says this event was commemorated. It was memorialized. It was memorialized because Jacob got a new name. And then it was memorialized because the place got a new name. And it was also memorialized because in the centuries afterwards, the Israelites had certain dietary restrictions that reminded them of what happened on this day. Jacob ends up with the fallout of this. He walks away. No, he doesn't walk away, does he? He limps away from this encounter with God. He ends up having this wrestling match, this encounter with God. He gets a new name. He gets a blessing and he gets a limp. Now, just think about this. Jacob went into this encounter weak. He went into this encounter at the end of himself saying, I've been able to scheme all my life and get ahead. Now I'm just weak. I'm empty. I have nothing left. He enters this encounter weak and he leaves the encounter weaker than he entered. He still has no schemes to get himself out of this. And now he also has a limp. Why does God lead us into desperate situations? I mean, just think about the story. In a minute, I'm going to tell you what happens after the story. But this is where chapter 32 ends. Chapter 32 ends not presenting to us that the big drama of this story is what's going to happen with Esau. What we're presented is that the big drama of the story is how Jacob is going to handle and what he is going to learn from this desperate situation that God has brought him into. The drama is not whether God is strong enough, whether God's going to keep his promises, or whether God really loves Jacob. The drama is what's going to happen with Jacob. And one of the reasons why we know that that's a drama is because when he gets to chapter 33 and Jacob and Esau finally meet, it's about the most nondescript, anticlimactic meeting you ever hear about. Jacob goes up to Esau, and Esau basically acts like there's no problem. He said, why do you send this gift? I'm just happy to see you. And Jacob's sort of like, what, what is going on here? This is very strange. He says, well, I want to give you this gift just to make sure everything's all right. And he says, I, I, I love you. I, I, you have plenty of favor in my eyes. Why, why the need for all, this, for all this drama surrounding this? And we're reading the story and we're thinking, what in the world? We had all of this build up to this encounter. And then when the encounter happens, God seems to have no problem at all solving the issue. You almost want to laugh at Jacob where you're like, you were really stressed out over what appeared to be nothing. The drama was not over whether or not God could get Jacob out of this. The drama was on how Jacob was going to respond to this situation. And what we see in the story is important for Jacob and it's hugely important for all of us. And that's that the reason that God leads us into desperate situations is so that our hope will be in his strength. God gets Jacob to a point that he utterly empties him out. He says, all right, Jacob, I've taken away your schemes. I've taken away your strength. I've taken away your protection. I've taken away your confidence in yourself and your brains and your deceit. I've taken away all of that. Now let's see if once you're emptied out, you'll finally come to the point that your hope is not in yourself, but your hope is in the strength of the Lord. One of the powerful things that we all have to come to grips with is that God does lead us into desperate situations. We can try to paint it as if it's the devil, and the devil is very much at work, but the devil's on a chain. He doesn't do anything without God co-signing it. Ultimately, every difficulty we face is something that God has led us into. And this isn't just an Old Testament idea. If you read 2 Corinthians chapter 12, you have something similar with the Apostle Paul 
where he says, I, I have this thorn in the flesh, which we don't know what it is, but it sounds bad. It's a bad thing that he has, a problem that he has. And he says, it's a messenger from Satan. But then he says, it's a messenger from Satan that was sent to me to keep me humble. Quick question. Does Satan want, God, does Satan want Paul humble? No. Who sent this messenger? God sent this messenger to Paul to keep him humble. And when Paul asked God to take the thorn away, God says, no. He says, my strength is made perfect in your weakness. Paul walks away weaker than he entered into the situation so that his hope can be in God's strength. We all find ourselves in desperate situations. And the drama is not whether or not God will be good. The drama is not whether or not God will be powerful or whether he'll keep his promises or whether he'll work all things for our good. The real drama is how we're going to respond and whether we're going to place our hope in his strength. And I just want to invite you now, think back to the times where you've seen God do this, because I bet you have. There are times where God just empties us out of all of our abilities so that he can show his strength. I remember years and years ago, when Karina and I were first married, we were living in Southern California, and we, we had decided to move up to Oregon. I was going to do my graduate school up there, and we were going to find a place that was cheaper than Southern California, which isn't hard. A lot of places are cheaper than Southern California. And we both thought that we had jobs lined up, and they were really promising, and it was all going to be good. And then about a week before we were going to drive up there, um, I, I ended up getting a call that my biggest job prospect had fallen through, and it was no longer an option. Um, it was pretty devastating. It was pretty frightening to look at a situation and say, it's not hard for God to get somebody a job. It's not hard for God to heal the sick. It's not hard for God to do any of these things. Why in the world would God lead me into that desperate situation? And we had the grace in that of finding out that about a month or two after we moved up, a job opened up that utterly dwarfed that other job prospect that I had. God is not random with these things. Sometimes he gives us a little bit of a view. He just allows us to see, you know what? When I'm leading you into the desperate situation, it's not because I can't give you what you need. It's because I'm reminding you that your confidence needs to not be in yourself, but to be in the strength of the Lord. What's the desperate situation you're facing? And, and, and let me just spell this out a little bit more. If you're saying, all right, what does this look like? What does it mean for my hope to be in the Lord? I'll give you at least three things that this means. The number one thing that this means is that you don't despair. It means that whatever you're facing, however dark and grim it looks, you don't despair because you have hope. And you don't just have hope with wishful thinking. You're not just saying, ah, it's all gonna work out. You have hope in the Lord. You have hope that God is working all things for your good. And if God is working all things for your good, it means not only that you don't despair, it means that you start looking around and saying, I bet I'm gonna start seeing beauty that God is bringing out of this ruin. You get your eyes open. You don't despair. You start looking around for how God is working all things for your good. If your hope is in the strength of the Lord, you don't despair. And the second thing that you don't do if your hope is in the Lord is you don't try to take over. You don't say, I'm in a desperate situation. And so you know what I need to do? I need to use all my strength. I need to use all my schemes. And frankly, I might even need to do some sin. 
I might even need to do some things. I might even need to lie a little bit because the situation's really desperate. I might need to take a little bit of revenge because the situation is desperate. I might need to do some sinning because the situation is that bad. If your hope is in the Lord, you don't have to sin your way out of your crisis because God is strong enough to lead you out of it. And it means you get to be like Jacob and you get to say, all right, God has brought me to the end of myself. And by the way, God bringing you to the end of yourself, it is painful. It's also part of his kindness. It's also part of God removing idols. It's part of God saying that thing that you're relying on, it won't hold up. But you keep clinging to it. So you know what? I'm just going to take it away so that it's not even an option anymore. So that you have to hope in the strength of the Lord. It means we don't despair. It means we don't take over. And the third thing that it means is that we simply draw near to God. We see God as superior. We look at him and we say, you know what? There's a lot of ways out of this and there's a lot of different things I can look to for deliverance, but I'm going to embrace the idea that there is nothing greater in my life than the deliverance brought through Jesus Christ. There's a weird verse in the book of Jeremiah um, where the, the prophet is speaking to the people of Israel and God is speaking through him. And he says that Israel has committed two sins. And the two sins that they committed are number one, they abandoned God, the spring of living water. And number two, they dug for themselves cisterns that are broken and hold no water. You know what that means? When we turn to sin and when we turn to our own devices to get us out of our desperate situations, it's not simply that we're doing something that God doesn't like. It's that we're choosing a broken cistern over the spring of living water. Brothers and sisters, hope in God. Hope in God, not just because it's the right thing to do and it's the thing as Christians that you're supposed to do, but hope in God because he really is the only savior. He really is the only one that delivers us. He really is the only one that has promised to work all things for our good. Don't just hope in the strength of the Lord because you're supposed to. Hope in the strength of the Lord because you have counted Jesus as of infinitely more value than anyone or anything else. Hope in the strength of the Lord. And and just one last thing, and that's this. I think the thing that makes it hard to do this is that we doubt God. That we doubt God's goodness and that we doubt God's strength. Sometimes we're so overwhelmed that we say, I don't know if God can get me out of this. And even if I believe God can get me out of this, I don't really know if God cares enough to do anything about this. And so if right now you're having those doubts, I I just want to point you in the direction of Jesus. And the reason is because if you ever doubt God's goodness, all you have to look at is the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, and the case is closed. All you have to look at is the fact that God didn't withhold his one and only son from us, and so there's no way God is going to hold out on us. If you doubt the goodness of God, all you have to do is look at the suffering and sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And by the way, if you ever doubt the power of God, all you have to do is look at the resurrection. If God can get a dead man out of the grave, I think he can solve your problem. And that doesn't mean he's going to solve the problem by giving you the exact job that you wanted or healing you in exactly the way that you want. But what it does mean is God is certainly strong enough to work all things for the good of those who love him 
and are called according to his purpose. If we ever doubt God's goodness or doubt God's power, all we have to do is look at Jesus. And we get to do this now in the next part of the service because we're about to experience communion together. And so if you're going to be helping out with communion, you can head to the back. And here's what I want to invite you to do during this time of communion. What I want to invite you to do is, as you are reflecting on the sacrifice of Jesus, I want to invite you to reflect on it this way. The sacrifice of Jesus was how God got you out of your most desperate situation ever. Because your biggest problem is not that you're unhealthy and your biggest problem is not that you don't have enough money and your biggest problem is not that you have relationship problems. Your biggest problem is that your sin condemns you to hell. And God solved that problem through sending his son to die in our place. With communion, we get reminded of God's power and his love to move into our most desperate situation and bring beauty out of that. So if you, as you reflect on the desperation that you feel right now, remember that the same God who is with you now is the God who delivered you from the most desperate situation you could possibly face. Let me pray for us as we get ready to partake. Father, thank you that you are good. Thank you that you care. Thank you that you are powerful. Thank you that you show us the kindness of emptying us of our ability to have confidence in ourselves. And Father, we pray that all of our hope, all of our trust, all of our confidence would be in you and in your strength. In Jesus' name, amen.